This episode is sponsored by Scout Books. Scout Books makes customizable notebooks and books in sunny Portland, Oregon, using 100% recycled papers, vegetable-based inks, and lots of love. Head over to scoutbooks.com to order your own custom design, pick up a few of our blank cover DIY notebooks, or shop our limited edition artist collaborations. Just for Bitch Podcast listeners, Scoutbooks is offering 15% off any order with offer code BITCHMEDIA. Visit scoutbooks.com slash bitchmedia to learn more. Who knows? Your next big idea might just be a little book. Bitch Media is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. Help make propaganda possible. Join hundreds of fellow listeners and become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Learn more at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. One, two, three, four, five, six. That's seven, activist and lawyer eight, Stephanie Woodward. Nine, She's counting ten, up the number of states 11, where just this week, the week of June 26th, groups of people with disabilities are taking over the offices of Republicans to protest the proposed repeal of Obamacare. 14. We have 14 on the list so far. My name is Stephanie Woodward, and I am the Director of Advocacy at the Center for Disability Rights um, in Rochester, New York, which we are a independent living center that does local, state, and national work to uh, fight for the integration, independence, and civil rights of people with disabilities. Donald Trump and other Republicans made repealing the Affordable Care Act a cornerstone of their campaigns last fall. Apparently, many Americans don't think of health care as a basic human right. Too often, we don't see the ability to stay alive, regardless of your income, as a basic foundation that our society can agree on. The fact that the idea that everyone deserves to have health care is controversial, that shows one way American identity is steeped in capitalism. That's what today's show is about, life under late capitalism. Late capitalism is a phrase that was first used by Marxist theorists at the turn of the 20th century. Over time, it's been used in different ways by different people. But right now, it's popping up all over as both a funny and cutting term to describe the absurdity and lack of dignity that comes along with our world's gaping inequality. For example, forcing Starbucks baristas to write race together on people's drink orders as a response to police brutality, that's late capitalism. Turning to crowdfunding sites like Indiegogo to raise money for a new oxygen tank for your grandmother because her insurance doesn't cover it and she'll die without it. That's late capitalism. This is a follow-up episode to another show we put together about the economy. That first episode is called Money Feelings. It came out a few weeks ago, and it features feminist artists and activists talking about how they make a living under capitalism, from what it's like to be a professional writer to the finances of starting your own podcast. Scroll back through your podcast feed if you want to hear it. This episode focuses more on poverty. We're highlighting perspectives from people who are really fighting marginalization in our capitalist country.
For many people with disabilities, the political fights over health care aren't abstractions. If Republicans go through with plans to slash funding for Medicaid and repeal the Affordable Care Act, it'll mean many people are no longer able to pay for things like wheelchairs, medications, and in-home nurses. As Republicans in the Senate were leading the charge to repeal Obamacare at the end of June, Stephanie Woodward and dozens of other people who use wheelchairs took over Senator Mitch McConnell's office, organized by a disability rights group called ADAPT. Police officers zip-tied the protesters and forced them out of the building, removing some protesters from their wheelchairs and carrying them down the hallway, even as they shouted their message. Videos and photos of this horrible scene seem destined to be looked back on in the future as proof of our especially inhumane and cruel current political climate. I mean, that's assuming we have a future. When I say that this is about our lives, like, we take that very seriously. Without Medicaid, our people will die, and we would rather go to jail than die without Medicaid. What has it been like occupying Republicans' offices? Can you tell me about what it felt like to be in Mitch McConnell's office last week in the hubbub and the chaos there? I mean, it felt necessary. I don't know that there's any other words to describe it. It wasn't scary for me. It was rather um, an empowering experience because I got to bring a lot of people from Rochester with us that their lives depend on this. And to see the way they fight um, so wholeheartedly for not only their lives, but the lives of millions of their brothers and sisters in the nation who need Medicaid to live, um, it, it feels really like an honor to be fighting next to, to these incredible people who won't let anything stop them from fighting for their rights. After her arrest, a friend snapped a photo of Stephanie sitting in her wheelchair in the police station with her hands zip-tied behind her back. The photo went viral, spreading around the internet and inspiring outrage about the arrest of protesters. After I was carried out of the building, I was set on the sidewalk outside of the Senate Russell Building, which is where we were protesting. I was zip tied and then I was given my wheelchair and I got in my wheelchair and just remained zip tied because, well, it wasn't about, I can't push myself being zip tied behind my back. So, um, what was it you're charged with? I was charged with incommoding, um, wait, incommoding, um, it basically means that we were in the way we were somewhere that people didn't want us to be, which I guess generally describes the existence of most people with disabilities. Um, most people just don't want us around. So the charge seemed fitting. Um, it also seemed fitting because there was no accessible ladies room in the police station. So while they were charging me with incommoding, I was like, so about the commode, let's talk about that because not giving me a bathroom seems like much worse of a punishment than what you're telling me. It sounds like you were incommoded by the lack of a commode. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad that you have a sense of humor about this, too, because that's all I was doing was making jokes about charged with incommoding, but I can't use the commode. Tell me more. I think it's so funny that when you see a photo like that, I think people will see that as like, wow, this brave moment in our civil rights history. And at the same time, you're like making toilet jokes. <laughs> well, when you've got to go, it's hard to think of anything else. 
Stephanie, I saw some responses to the photo of you that made it clear that people were surprised to see someone with a disability protesting. This was just one protest in the long history of protests led by people with disabilities for access to health care and equal rights. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that history and the persistent assumption that if you use a wheelchair, you're not going to be a fiery activist. So I think that there's always been this stereotype and stigma that people with disabilities can't speak for themselves and certainly can't fight for our own rights or our own lives. Um, we're expected to be complacent and just accept whatever our able-bodied overlords allow us to have. Um, and you see this not only with healthcare, but with rights in general. People, when I, as an attorney, I, I get upset about the little things like a one-step entrance in a restaurant. It's the law is pretty clear. You have to have an accessible entrance. A one-step entrance violates the law, whether or not your building was built in 1990 or 1972 or before. You can easily get rid of a one-step entrance, but you don't. And when I complain about it, people are like, well, why can't you just be happy that there's a back entrance? Why can't I be happy with a segregated entrance? Is that your question for me? When I have the right to enter the front door like everybody else? Um I'm expected to just be thankful for what people decide is acceptable for me to have. And that's just not the way people with disabilities should be treated. And that's not what we will accept. This sounds like a really basic question, but just bear with me. Like, how does having access to health care shape your relationship to the economy? And how does that access or lack of access show, like, the real human impact of our capitalist economy? So... I'll start with a very basic example of me. I am certainly not the most complex case when it comes to disability. Um, I'm a wheelchair user. Basic is that I have pretty good mobility, but I need a wheelchair. I am a lawyer. If I did not have a wheelchair, I, I could not work. I could not pay taxes. I could not buy a house or feed my four cats named after the Golden Girls. I need my wheelchair to do that. However, getting insurance companies to pay for wheelchairs, you would think that I was asking them to buy me a gold-plated toilet. I think when you do the math of it, it seems to me to be really basic that having health care available for every American saves money in the long run and is also just the right thing to do from a moral human standpoint. But it's, it's so it's such an uphill battle here in the United States. And so I'm wondering, like, Right now, Republicans are in the process of trying to repeal Obamacare, and about 30% of Americans say they want to repeal the law. Like, why do you think so many Americans think expanding health care is a bad idea? Like, why is it so damn hard for us to get the kind of basic care that's offered in countries across Europe as, as a norm? I think there's this idea that I work hard, so if you get something for free that I had to work for, then you're somehow benefiting off of me. And there's not this idea that we're a community and we have to help each other. We're interdependent. It's not just people with disabilities that depend on people without disabilities. We are an interdependent community and country. Uh, and, and that's just the way the world works. And beyond that, what is your other choice? If you don't help people with disabilities get insurance, you're saying that in the wealthiest country in the world, we're going to let people die rather than help them get insurance that can help them live. Like that doesn't make sense to me that we're the wealthiest nation and we care so much about 
like value of life and quality of life. But when it comes to healthcare, every man for themselves. What's what's behind that cultural idea, do you think? Like what's driving that mindset? I think that there's a misconception with this idea of the American dream and that all you have to do is pull yourself up by your bootstraps and suddenly you can get things done. I come from a family with strong Republican ideals and I think my dad learned really quick after having a disabled daughter that no amount of pulling on his bootstraps in 1988 was going to get his disabled daughter health insurance. And so I was a Medicaid recipient and I, I still heard him say things like, well, those people are just scamming the system. And yet for some reason I wasn't. And it, it's very hard for me to, and still is hard for me to figure out how he reconciled that, that it was okay for me to benefit, but it wasn't okay for others because they were scamming the system. The disabled people who I'm fighting with and fighting for will die without health insurance. And I hear so many people say, well, that's not fair to take money from someone else to pay for their health insurance. So the other option is to just let them die. I'm confused. What, what are you saying here? Because no one will ever say we should just let them die. But if you look at how the argument goes, there's only one conclusion to what you're saying to me is that you don't want to pay for someone else to live. So therefore you want them to die. Like there's no other conclusion to draw. One of the most tragic trends of like the late capitalist era that we live in is crowdfunding for healthcare. People, I've seen campaigns running on sites like GoFundMe to raise money for cancer treatments, for organ transplants, for dental care. Have you seen these campaigns? And when you see them, what do you think of, what does it make you think about the way that our country functions? It breaks my heart to see that we're such a wealthy country and there are people who can't pay for a cancer treatment like that. It baffles me that we would we would let that happen to our fellow American. We always talk about America being the greatest and America being so strong and my fellow American. But when it comes to your fellow American needing something basic to live, suddenly, well, they should have worked harder for it. Why? If everybody works hard together, but they fall on different circumstances than you, they should deserve less health care because they had bad luck and you didn't? I guess I say this as a question a lot of the times because it doesn't compute in my head. It doesn't compute that... that if you get in a car accident and break your neck when you're 30 years old, we should just not let you have health care because you're not working hard for it. Um, one more question. I want to know about these cats. <laughs> oh my God, my cats are the greatest cats in the world. So, um... I have a gray collection. I call it the gray collection. My cats are all gray in some way or another. So um, 
I have Kit Kat, who is um, the queen, Granite, who is afraid of everything, and Sophia and Rose, who were accidents, and by accidents, I mean my mom showed up at my house with two kittens one day, and I was like, what the hell, you can't return things that breathe. So I accidentally got four cats, and I named the last two after Golden Girls, because who doesn't love Sophia and Rose from the Golden Girls? Rosie! That's so great. Thank you for sharing your cats and also your time. Well, thanks for uh, asking about my cats. That makes everything worth it to me. Every time I see someone talk about cats, I'm like, well, this was worth my time. (laughs) That was Stephanie Woodward of the Center for Disability Rights. Even when Obamacare isn't on the chopping block and they're fighting for their lives, the Center for Disability Rights works around the clock on issues of accessibility and civil rights. Look them up to support their crucial work. Next up, we meet a poverty scholar. Um, well, let's just start out. Can you just introduce yourself and, and tell us who you are and what you do? I am a poverty scholar, that houseless mama, that houseless daughter. I'm all the people you don't want to see, never want to be, look away from me. What you going to do, arrest me? I'm in your city. I am a poverty scholar, and I rock my jailhouse attire because me and my poor mama did jail time just trying to stay alive and housed in this holler. I am a poverty scholar melanin challenged daughter of a strong affable equal mama for without whom there'd be no me a mama soltera and a welfare queen that's lisa gray garcia who goes by the name tiny as a kid tiny was often homeless she and her mom lived out of their car in los angeles and oakland so uh, i always start introducing myself by verse because um, as a poverty scholar, which is, means my knowledge is lived knowledge, I graduated from school hard knocks with a Ph.D. in poverty, um, really was just a struggle. Um, had to drop out of institutional schools in the sixth grade and um, enroll full time in the, in the University of Life. And for that, in this context, that meant figuring out ways to navigate uh, racist and classist system that evicts you if you don't have money to pay for Mother Earth for rent, uh, that uh, criminalizes you if you sleep on the so-called not really public stolen streets, and in the end, um, really makes it impossible for poor single parents, specifically single women, to survive, much less thrive. As an adult, Tiny's written a memoir about being homeless in the United States and helped run the Poor News Network. It's a nonprofit media outlet publishes a digital magazine, YouTube videos, books written by low and no-income people, and a poverty-focused radio show in the Bay Area. We got an FCC license, which is crazy. Like, us ghetto scholars got an FCC license. I don't even know. But but anyway, we're about to launch 4 News Network, KEXU 96.1, KSU, The Crossroads, in the IFA tradition. When I talked to Tiny, she was at Homefulness, a space in Oakland that runs classes on topics like decolonization and media making. As we were talking, students came in and out, but there were also some more unexpected noises at Homefulness. This is the media and journalism classroom and also the location of our 
elephant circles, which are our matriarchal-led indigenous circle where we make decisions. So a lot happens in a very small amount of space, the short version of that. Is that a rooster I just heard in the background? Yeah, there's a rooster, there's a goat, two of them. And it, this rooster is hella G. He, like, yells at people and goes up on his talons and tries to kill you. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much the kind of rooster we would get. <laughs> the Poor News Network runs so many different creative projects around class and inequality. Right now, for example, one project they're organizing is a tour called the Stolen Lands Hoarded Resources Tour. There's a video of the most recent tour on YouTube. In it, members of Poor Magazine's news network walk around the ritzy Bay Area suburb of Belvedere and talk to whoever they meet about wealth redistribution. Some neighbors who they meet on the wide suburban streets are hostile. Some are awkward. One person calls the police. But some are polite, at least. I, I, we help them a lot. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, great. You. So you'd be interested in homefulness, which is actually a homeless okay. people's solution to homelessness. Okay, well, I'll read this. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. All right. Good luck to you all. Thank and you. And I'll say love life. Why don't you? <laughs> love life. We need some more of it. Love life. The end is laughing. Love life. In her memoir, Criminal of Poverty, Growing Up Homeless in America, Tiny talks about how being poor is criminalized in many ways. I asked her to explain what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. As a poor mother or father, um, your lives are watched, surveilled, and criminalized if you're unhoused. And you can be considered an unfit parent for the sole act of being without a roof. Um, And not just that, but just for the act of parenting within within a, a culturally deep structure of a community of color that maybe isn't uh, considered acceptable within a um, Eurocentric, Western, heteropatriarchal, psychologically defined system of normalcy. Um, Like my mother and myself were uh, many times threatened by CPS because I had to stay home and take care of my mom. I couldn't go to school. She was disabled. Just jumping in here to say that CPS stands for Child Protective Services, the government agency that's in charge of preventing child abuse and neglect. That was considered, uh, I was considered truant, and I was also considered, um, in some level, being abused by the fact of taking care of my mom. Um, and, you know, the fact that we were working, she wasn't using drugs, um, we weren't lazy and stupid and crazy and all of these titles they give to poor people. We were working all the time to survive, uh, selling art on the street. But, you know, it was never enough. And um, so the act of being under, on the underground economy, which in our case was selling art without a license, which a lot of poor people do not have the, the money to purchase these licenses it takes to have a business. They don't have the money to pay ground rent to have a business. So they're criminalized for the act of doing a business. You know, people have have gotten their minds wrapped around corporate um, solutions for everything. So if an independent contractor, which is how I look at it, picks up recycling out of a trash can owned by waste management, they're considered, that's considered a crime. Um, And the owner or the apartment dweller can call the cops on that person, and they oftentimes do. not for doing anything except for recycling bottles, which has now cons- been, been uh, called a commodity by an industry built around that, right? Um, how do we get our, wrap- our eyes wrapped around and our minds wrapped around this idea that corporations owns our trash? 
right? You know, there's so many ways. Uh, another one I tell is the story of my own, which is me and my mom were sleeping in our car. Our car. You know, not even somebody else's. It wasn't Grand Theft Auto, whatever, revisited. Um, but we were in a neighborhood where people didn't want to see houseless people sleeping in their car. Called the police on us all the time, from L.A. to Oakland to Frisco. And those citations piled up enough, and we didn't have the money to pay for them. So that's why I got incarcerated at 18. You've been thinking about these issues for your whole life, Tiny, in the last 40 years. I'm wondering, how do you think about the way people see class and talk about class in the United States has changed in your lifetime? Do you think that the way people think about and talk about capitalism is changing? It's a really fascinating question. You know, I I feel charged and inspired that there are more woke people, um, young people who are kind of more clear-headed thanks to uh, some of the movements that have come up, that have rose up, like Black Lives Matter, um, Occupy, some other things. You know, there were problems with all those movements and would continue to be in the sense that, you know, revolutionaries and freedom fighters were there a long time before these movements came up. But what they did is they um, woke some more folks up so that there's more, I feel there's a larger group of people who are more clear-headed about the very real issues of white supremacy, racism, um, settler colonialism, uh, land theft, classism, and poverty. I do feel that. I also feel like we're still caught in the nonprofit industrial complex. The nonprofiteers is the answer. Um, you know, these kind of large uh, solutions and the I got minds mentality, meaning that, um, you know, yeah, I got my little thing and it's enough for me and my family, then I'm cool and I can turn out the rest of the world. And so in some ways I feel like the apathy has risen. That was Tiny Gray Garcia and the Homefulness Rooster. You can learn about the work of the Poor News Network, see what classes are offered at their Decolonize Academy, and check out the upcoming Stolen Lands Hoarded Resources Tour at racepovertymediajustice.org. What does it mean to be successful, anyway? Does it mean making a lot of money? Does it mean being able to support your family? Does it mean trying to make your community better? There's never any final point where you can say, I'm successful now, thank you, I'll take home that award and call it a day. But our evolving definitions of success are undoubtedly shaped by capitalism, by how much money we can make and the level of comfort in our lives. Our ideas of success are also shaped by our families and where we come from. These are some of the big issues that Backtalk podcast co-host Amy Lamb talked over with community organizer Jessica Lee. Jessica works as a youth mentor with teens and undergraduate students in her job as the program director with Washington, D.C.-based group, the D.C. Schools Project. They talked about a Facebook post that Jessica had recently written that digs into family, culture, money, and social justice. Here's Jessica reading the post, then you'll hear Amy Lamb's reaction and their conversation. Listen in. (laughs) 
So I recently got some he really heavy, hurtful criticism for not making more money with a master's degree and seven years of experience to take care of my parents. I refuse, resist, and reject the notion that my value lies in how much money I can make based on the value of my supposed productivity. I refuse to believe that I can only live a good life and fulfill my familial duties if I uphold and participate and am complicit in all the ways that capitalism dehumanizes and harms. I refuse to believe that there is only one definition of success. I refuse to believe that there is just one way to live. And I refuse to believe that my engagement in social justice work doesn't somehow serve my parents, who are immigrants, limited English proficient, and low income. And there is no way that working within the very systems that do them harm can do them good. Hashtag self-reminders. Hashtag I'm a person, not a money-making machine. Okay, first of all, thank you so much for writing that. Um, <laughs> it really like <laughs> it really hit me in my feelings when I read this because I related to so much of this. Um, and I, the reason why I related to so much of this is because like you know my parents are refugees, mm -hmm. and there's this idea that you know they came to this country for a better life for their mm -hmm. children, for myself and my two brothers. Um, and what that better life means is to like earn a lot of money. Uh, yep. So, Kate, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about your background and how it related to this post. Um, so, gosh, I try I try not to be super wordy with it. Um, so, my parents are both Korean; they're immigrants. Uh, my dad immigrated first a long time ago, like around the seventies, um, early seventies, and he joined the military to get naturalized, and then went back to Korea to meet my mom, or not in order to meet my mom, but basically to get match made. Um, and then they got matched, they got married, and then they immigrated together to Los Angeles, uh, where I was born. So um, I have a younger brother uh, who is about a year and a half younger than me, and we're, he was also born in L.A., um, we moved up to Portland because my dad, you know, thought there was a better business opportunity there. Um, and then I went off to get my master's degree, um, when I was, God, like 25, 24, um, in, back in California. And then he joined the military. Um, so he, um, yeah, so he makes significantly more money than I do basically. And I think it's interesting because like in your post and like you mentioned now, mm -hmm. um, you had gone to go on and get your master's degree. Mm -hmm. And I think especially like within uh, first-generation immigrant parents and the community, it's like if you're going on to earn a master's degree, there's this assumption that then you will earn more money. Oh, yeah. Um, and in your and in your post, like uh, you told me like the background story to your post. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could share yeah. what, what kind of like... Um, what was the catalyst for you to post something sure. like this? Sure, yeah. So... Um, you know, I had had an emergency with my phone and it had like, it was on a work trip actually. And so my phone got completely destroyed and I had no phone. And for my, my mom, it's, it's important to her, to, for her to be able to, um, know how I'm doing. Right. Cause you know, she lives on the other side of the country. And I think a lot of immigrant mothers are like this, especially with their daughters where like, you know, you don't hear from your children for like, you know, two days or even a day, you know, without a text. And they're like, where are you? What happened to you? Did somebody kidnap my child? Um, and my mom's especially, I think, she always talked about how, like, growing up with me, it was more so that way because I'm a girl, right? So I called, I, I called home and I was like, so this is a situation, um, you know, I need to wait for it to 
I need to go send it in. I need to go call in the insurance, um, you know, and I'm not going to have a phone. And, and my mom was like, well, how much is it going to cost you? And so I was like, it's going to cost me $199. And, you know, for, for most people, I think it's not like, I think for some people it's like not a whole lot of money, but to me, that's a lot of money. Right. Um, my parents are interesting. Like they have a stash of money, so I know I can borrow, but I also feel bad about it at the same time. Right. But it's like, if I don't have a phone and then mm-hmm. they can't contact me, then they can't like, like I can't do things for them if they need me to do something like, like immediately. And then, you know, so thinking through those things, I was like, well, I could not have a phone for a week. So I call my dad. So, well, I talked to my dad and my dad's like, you know, he's like, okay, well, okay, $199. Okay, let's see if we can do this. My brother hears him in the background. And my brother is like, just say no, just mm. say no. Like, tell, hang up on her. And I could wow. hear him. I could hear him in the background. He's like, hang up on her. And he was like, she is 33 years old. She has a master's degree. And she can't cover that on her own. That is a problem. And then he was like, hang up on her. Don't, don't listen to her, right? And the thing is like... Wow. You know, my brother makes six figures. Like, he gets his housing covered. He gets, you know, when he travels, like, his bag is covered because he can count military. Um, you know, he's, he's like, made it up in the ranks because he entered as an, um, as an officer because he's a, he was a college grad. So, you know, for him... And also, he's always been, like, very frugal um, with money. And so... And for him, like, as a product of poverty, you know, he went for the route that was going to make him money. Um, And then I went the route where I saw, like, if if these structures and systems weren't in place to begin with, my parents would not be where they are, right? My parents would not Mm -hmm. struggle. We would not have struggled in the way that we did if the systems were equitable and just. But I'd also been banking on public service loan forgiveness because I'm almost at the 10-year mark um, for, Mm. for loan forgiveness. So, you know, it also didn't make sense for me to quit my job to make more money where I would have to pay more in loans than to stay here and then get it forgiven in three years, um, for working for in public service for 10 years and to get the loans forgiven. So it was interesting to me that my brother had gotten so frustrated at some point that, you know, I wasn't engaging in those standard, you know, definitions of what success meant. Right. And so, he basically was like, if you can't take care of yourself, how can you take care of other people? And, you know, why can't you be smart mm-hmm. enough to save more money to do something like that? But, you know, the more I think about it, too, it's it's like a lot of, um, you know, first gens, you know, who come from poverty or, you know, unless they get into a really high paying job right out of college, it's it's actually really hard. You're either you're either also trying to just stay in in like to break even constantly Um, and saving is really difficult to do, right? Unless you like know how to navigate these systems and norms and how to make connections that are going to, you know, really support you in your being able to like be in the green and save some money. And I really didn't learn how to navigate those things and figure that kind of stuff out until I was much older. Yeah. I think that the, um, one of the lines that I really loved about your post is when you said, I refuse to believe that my engagement in social justice work doesn't somehow serve my parents mm-hmm. um, who are immigrant, limited English proficient, and low income. Because, like, I, I think that in many of our communities, um, like refugee and immigrant communities where they raise children here, like, there's this expectation that 
um, in order to support and sort of like to be um, invested or mm-hmm. to give back to your community is to do that in a, by finan- like a financially yeah. yep. and mm-hmm. not so much as like, you know, like, like in your work as a community organizer. Um, and and the, the, I, like I said before, one of the reasons why this hit me so close is because I identified so much with it. Like mm-hmm. I also have, I'm also the oldest with two younger brothers um, who earn significantly more than me and they have like <laughs> much of my adult life, you know, and like, yeah. I never not did not hear about it. Like mm-hmm. the second they were able to like earn more than me, it was just something that like, I always knew. And it was like more pressure, I think on us because we're the oldest. Yeah. That's absolutely. something about like birth order. That's, yeah. That's and also daughters. an issue. Yep. Um, yes. But, and the thing about daughters is it's also complicated because as, as girls and as women, like, um, there's this notion of like, yes, you should also kind of support your parents mm-hmm. but maybe you don't need to because like you'll ha- you'll marry a husband who will take care of you yeah you know so it's like it's like this weird double standard of like of like okay i guess you can, you know if you earn a lot of money that'd be great but like how much will your future husband earn that's right. actually more interesting you know yeah and actually i don't fault my parents for believing in like in be- believing in capitalism i right. mean that's what it comes down to yeah absolutely right? um because of where they came from, you know, mm-hmm. like they came from a, I mean, the refugees from a war, they yeah. literally came here with nothing yep. and, and, and they worked so hard just to survive. Mm-hmm. So when, when they sort of like measure success and measure, um, to an extent, like, um, a conditional love, right. I mean, right. like, <laughs> I'm not saying Absolutely. that my parents like, uh, only love me conditionally, but, no, but that's, how but it that's feels. part of it. It's like, yeah. Yes, yes, that it, it matters. That's how it feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, yes, like it hurts my feelings, but I also can't fault them. Yeah. Because like, I have no idea what they came from. Mm-hmm. And, and economic security means something to them. Mm-hmm. And like, and I, and like, I think what you said was really uh, interesting in that like, it isn't just about like, um, whether or not I have an ability to take care of them through my mm-hmm. like economic means, but like, it speaks to whether or not I can take care of myself. Yeah. And, like, okay, my parents don't listen to any of the podcasts that I do, so I can say this without them knowing. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but a few years ago, um, <laughs> um, also my brothers don't listen either. So, but a few years ago, uh, my brother, um, the oldest of the two, younger ones, he decided that, like, we should have, like, a parent savings fund, which mm-hmm. is so Asian, right? Yeah, I think it's so yeah, Asian that is very to be, like... Asian. <laughs> you know, especially Asian immigrant to be like, we should save some money for our parents. Yeah. So at that time, like I was literally making a third of what he was making and like maybe a half of what the other brother was making. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't able to contribute as much. And I said like, can I please only contribute a third of what you guys are? Cause that's mm-hmm. what my income level is. Right. And you know, my brother, my brother said, yeah, sure. But, but he was also like, this is messed up. Like, why are we doing it this way? Like, I also felt that feeling, yeah. you know? And so there's a feeling of of like him being annoyed by it, of course. Yeah. Um, and like your brother was annoyed at you for you know needing the two hundred bucks to cover your phone. Yeah. But I think that like under underlying that like you're saying, um, there's also the feeling of like, well, fuck, like if you can't take care of this two hundred bucks, then like does that mean like you know mom and dad will have to take care of you down the line, mm-hmm. or like you're not doing your responsibility right. um, as being a good like Asian child. Yeah. So it, it isn't just that like you're taking money from mom and dad, but that like mom and dad may have to use their money to take care of you, which they were doing in that moment for you. And I right. think that like, it's both like, 
it's both like him being annoyed and my brother being annoyed, but also being like, I'm worried about you, but in this really fucked up way of saying it, you know? Yeah, no, um, it really is. And yeah, and, and, and the framing is that like, um, you're not succeeding in this capitalist society mm-hmm. and like, and that is how we measure success, period, full yeah. stop. So, so to also be basically kind of blamed or judged as like failing in life, right? For not being financially secure in the way that, you know, he felt like I should be given where I am in terms of age um, and being the older sister. Like that was, I mean, that was probably like, that one hit really hard. That one hit really hard. Mm-hmm. And I just... And I think mm-hmm. that like, it's it's also a combination of I mean your mo- your mother recognized your work but it's also a combination of like your brother not recognizing your work like yeah. like your work impacts y- your work impacts um, our communities in in a really specific way um, and I think that and I think especially and and of course this isn't true of like all immigrant communities um, and all refugee communities but I think that when you come from like a low income um, uh, immigrant or refugee community and you arrive here and you work so hard to raise your children um there's a lot of like a dog eat dog feeling mm-hmm. of like we don't have time to take care of anybody else but us yeah so when when you're when you are doing your work and you're investing your own money into your work like that isn't being seen as like you investing money into the that isn't being seen as you investing your money into your family even though you're investing your money to a community that, mm-hmm. that does support families like yours yeah and i think that's where there's like a um there's like a intellectual or a, a lot like some kind of weird disconnect between um how we understand who our communities are and what yes. does it mean to like impact them meaningfully within this like capitalist uh, structure and and that's i think that's the hard part of like how how we think about how we earn our money um and our relationships to capitalism and how it influences our relationships with our family. Right. So I think of the work that you do as being radical, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so how how do you how do you sort of like navigate that weird space between doing like radical work that has like tinges of like anti capitalist feelings, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Or um anti capitalist aspects while at the same time sort of like um, understanding where your parents are coming from and knowing that, like, for them, uh, succeeding in a capitalist um, society yeah, uh, is what matters. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you navigate those two worlds? Gosh. I mean... Let's challenge... Well, I'm trying to think of theory of that question. Because um, the work that I'm doing, I mean, predominantly is about raising consciousness for my students. Um you know, I got, I once was asked a question by a graduating senior, um, who had a, actually a really terrible experience at Georgetown, which is actually not unheard of for students of color, um, who was just ready to go. And she asked me this really difficult question about how do you dismantle white supremacy in a white supremacist space? Because Georgetown, mm. believe it or not, is a white institution, right? It's a predominantly white institution. Um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, as much as folks within it may not call it that, um, you know, it, it exists, right. It's, it's going to have a function of institutional racism. But when a student asked me that, um, you know, one of the things that I think about in terms of how I do kind of an anti-capitalist, you know, um, dismantling racism, white supremacy spaces, first of all, I mean, I have to do the work for myself, right. So, I mean, you mentioned a little bit that 
you know, you appreciated that it sounded really unapologetic. Um, that post sounded really unapologetic, mm-hmm. but I'm actually, that was actually trying me trying to be unapologetic, but still having, feeling some kind of way about it. Right. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, my, what my brother said was really hurtful. And so, and, and I also recognize mm-hmm. like, I do want to help my parents. Right. But I don't, I don't see myself being helpful in that way. Um, for me, it may mm-hmm. be more of my emotional labor and it may be more of my physical or manual labor that I provide that my brother can't, right? He may provide the monetary component. Um, I mean, it's kind of like how we navigate being Asian and, you know, child of immigrants and being bicultural is, you know, for a really long time, they were just parallel to each other. And in some ways, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out how to make them intersect, if that makes sense. I don't know if that answered your question. Mm-hmm. No, I think you did. I think that you answered it right off the bat when you said that, um, like, within this capitalist system where uh, we sort of prioritize uh, one's earning potential or earnings, um, uh, and then we kind of, like, conflate that with their value as a person, um, you're sort of, uh, you don't want to play that game, and you said... I'm going to quote yourself back to you, but you said something about um, that you find other ways to support your family, mm-hmm. if not through money, right? Yeah. You said you offer like emotional support, um, that kind of labor. And I think that's so important. And actually, that's something that we have to name because, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I keep saying like our communities are not monolithic, but I think that within some of our communities, like we take um, emotional labor uh, for granted. Absolutely. It's just something that you're supposed to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just supposed to perform it for your family. And, um, especially if you're without a girl. thinking about how much work it is. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a girl, especially, especially if you're a mother yep, and especially yep, if you're a daughter. Yep, yep. Yeah. And I, I, I really love that you're saying that like, we have to reframe how we think about that. You know, like, of course I know that like I'm performing a very specific type of labor, but we have to reframe how we think about it and also communicate that to our family that mm-hmm. we have changed the way we've thought about it. Right. You know, that like me, me listening to you, me offering you advice, me supporting you in a, a, an emotional, mental capacity is something that you can't get elsewhere. And and um, and it's it's valuable, even yeah. if you can't put money to it. It's valuable. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I think that like and you know what? I think your family is really lucky to have you. Somebody oh, thank like you. you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Maybe you're going to make me cry. Because like, <laughs> I think you speak like very cogently about this, you know, to so hear you say that about how you're able to communicate that with your family is like really heartening. And I think that like, it gives me a lot of hope that like within our communities, um, we can help each other in ways that maybe now we don't find as valuable, but like down the line, hopefully in like future generations, they can see the value in the work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, even if it's not um, being shown like on our pay stubs. That was Backtalk Podcast co-host Amy Lamb talking with Jessica Lee of the DC Schools Project. One of the traps with capitalism is that it makes us think that money is all that matters. We need money to live and to get by, but there are many, many essential and wonderful and necessary things in life that don't have any monetary value at all. One question I keep thinking about is, what are those things we value? And how can we hold them even closer as our country seems to spiral out of control? (laughs) 
This episode was sponsored by Scout Books. Scout Books makes customizable notebooks and books in sunny Portland, Oregon, using 100% recycled papers, vegetable-based inks, and lots of love. Head over to scoutbooks.com to order your custom design, pick up a few of our blank cover DIY notebooks, and shop for limited edition artist collaborations. Just for Bitch Podcast listeners, Scout Books is offering 15% off any order with offer code BITCHMEDIA. Visit scoutbooks.com slash bitchmedia to learn more. Who knows, your next big idea might just be a little book. This show is produced for Bitch Media by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Every episode of Propaganda is transcribed by Cheryl Green at Storyminders. We're proud to make Propaganda available to people who are deaf and hard of hearing. You can find full transcripts of every show at bitchmedia.org under the podcasts tab. If you have thoughts or feelings or feedback on the show, please feel encouraged to send me an email at sarah with an H at bword.org. I read every email and I'm always excited to hear what you think. You can help make Propaganda possible. Become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine, and other great benefits. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Thank you.